God loves metaphors, and one of the most intriguing is found in the 81st Psalm. A metaphor is a figure of speech. It's a literary device that a writer will use where he will take two things that are not related at all, don't seem to have anything in common, and yet he puts them together to create a picture. He, the writer is trying to get you to see something you haven't considered before. So to wake you up and get your attention, he creates this comparison. He, he lines up these two things, these two objects that you don't normally think of together, but he puts them together to not only catch your interest, but to help you discover a new truth. God does this all the way through the Bible. He loves metaphors. And one of the most interesting is found in the very last verse of the 81st Psalm. Verse 16 of Psalm 81, God makes a promise. He says, I will satisfy you with honey out of a rock. Honey out of a rock? I mean, there are two things that you don't normally think of together, honey and a rock. One's sweet and the other's hard. One's delightful and nourishing and life-giving. The other's harsh and barren and unyielding. Why is God making this comparison? Honey out of a rock. Why is God putting these two things together? What is he trying to get us to understand? That sometimes you will experience your deepest joys and your sweetest fellowship with the Lord as you are going through some of the hardest experiences of your life. Joy in the midst of hardship? Joy in the midst of suffering? Joy in the midst of trials? Yes. Honey out of a rock. Isn't this exactly what King David was trying to describe in the 23rd Psalm? There in the middle of that epic poem, he writes this phrase. He says, Thou preparest a table before me. It's a picture of intimacy. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right away we think, hey, David, didn't you get that wrong? Don't you mean after you got rid of all of my enemies? You know, now there's no longer any sword hanging over my head. Now the danger's been removed. Now I can finally relax. That's when God sets up the table so the two of us can sit down and enjoy a meal together and have an opportunity to really get close. Isn't that what you meant? No, it's not what the psalmist said. He said, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. While I'm still surrounded by the danger and the darkness, while the threat is still looming large. It's in that kind of setting that God chooses to feed my faith and restore my soul. It's in that kind of setting that he allows me an opportunity to get close and intimate with him in a way like I have never known before. Honey, out of a rock. Finding joy in the last place I expected to find it. Finding joy in the midst of my troubles? Yes. Now, the question that comes to my mind is, is that really possible? And, of course, the answer is yes. But what we're going to learn today from the experience of the wise men and the magi here in Matthew chapter 2, sometimes to be able to experience that kind of joy, that, that deep, profound joy, you have to fight for it. The Apostle Paul understood this. There in Ephesians chapter 3, he uses a really interesting phrase. He's praying for his friends. And, and one of the things he's praying for is he's praying that the Holy Spirit would give them the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God for us. But he prays they have the power to grasp it because grasping that kind of love, just how big that love is for us, sometimes that doesn't come easily. Sometimes it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't always just happen automatically. You need help in order to grasp it. In fact, that phrase, the power to grasp, was often used back in the ancient world to describe an army trying to capture a city. But before they can claim that city for their own, they have to fight for it. I mean, they have to engage in a long, hard battle, lots of effort, lots of struggle, lots of blood, sweat, and tears. They have to conquer the city first before they can actually live there and enjoy it as their home. Or sometimes this expression, the power to grasp, is used to describe two men in a wrestling match. 
and the one guy realizes because his opponent is so big and so strong, if I'm to have any chance of winning this match, it's going to require everything I've got. I mean, I'm just literally going to have to jump on that guy and use every ounce of strength to try to overpower him and bring him down and finally pin his shoulders to the ground. It's going to require an immense amount of effort, an immense amount of struggle before I finally win that match. Well, the Apostle Paul says sometimes it requires that kind of effort that kind of energy, that kind of struggle in order for us to really grasp how big and deep and wide is the love of God for us. In other words, sometimes you've got to be willing to wrestle with the word or wrestle with the Lord in prayer, or wrestle with your circumstances before you finally achieve that breakthrough moment, that moment when it finally hits you. Hey, I got it. I, I think I've got it. Jesus loves me. I am finally beginning to comprehend what that really means for me. The Apostle Paul guarantees that breakthrough moment is going to come, but sometimes in order for it to happen, in order for you to experience it, you have to fight for it. Think of it like this. Not all of us came to Jesus in the same way. Some of you met Jesus just like the shepherds of Luke chapter 2. It was a total surprise. You weren't expecting him. Well, I mean, it was almost like you were ambushed by the Lord. You weren't seeking him, but he was seeking you. And one day he just kind of showed up. There he was in all his glory, and you knew right on the spot you needed to respond to him just like the shepherds of Luke chapter 2. Out in the fields one night, just kind of minding their own business, here in the midst of all these animals, just kind of having a little chit-chat with each other. Hey, how's the wife? Oh, she's good. Oh, that's great. How about you? Is life treating you okay? Yeah, I'm doing well. Glad to hear it. I mean, just another quiet night, not expecting anything special, and all of a sudden, the whole sky lights up, and suddenly there's a band of angels, and they break out into song, and they announce the news, for unto you a Savior is born in Bethlehem. And immediately they respond, hey, let's go see this thing that has happened. And before the night's over, there they are standing in the manger, staring into the very face of God. Now think about that. There's no long search, no difficult quest. Just all of a sudden, God showed up. I mean, they weren't asking for it. They weren't expecting. All of a sudden, suddenly he was there, and suddenly everything in their heart just came alive, and they knew right in that moment they needed to say yes to him. I mean, it's wonderful. It's glorious to have an experience like that. And if that's how you first encounter the Lord, that's great. But you need to understand, and you need to be understanding of others. Not all people came to the Lord that way. Others came a different way. Others came more like the Magi of Matthew chapter 2. We had to make, as it says here in verse 8, a careful search for the Christ child. And the search wasn't easy. There were lots of questions, lots of struggles. It was a long journey with all kinds of challenges along the way. There were a lot of bridges that had to be crossed, a lot of mental and emotional hurdles that had to be overcome before finally we were able to see Jesus for ourselves and experience the joy of surrendering to him. You see, the Magi, they found the honey too, just like the shepherds. They found the honey, but for the Magi, the honey came out of a rock, out of a long, hard journey. Take a look at their story. Matthew chapter 2. Let's read through this. This is fascinating to me. It says, uh, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, that's the Bethlehem that's in the southern part of the land of Israel, during the time of King Herod, and a, and a contrast is going to be made all the way through this chapter between Herod and Jesus, the kind of king Herod is, the kind of king Jesus is. Vivid contrast. It's during the time of his reign, the, the time of King Herod, that Magi came from the east. Where in the east? We're not sure. Whether it's Arabia, Persia, Babylon, not sure. But somewhere way out east, they make this long journey to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, verse 2, they, they start asking all the people around town, hey, where is he? Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star. It's the Greek word aster, astera. 
And it's a word that can be used to describe any kind of light up there in the sky, a meteor, a, a planet, a star, a, a sudden appearance of a comet. So what kind of light God put up there, in the, you know, whether it was a nova, a supernova, a giant explosion of a star, or special alignment of planets, or the sudden appearance of a new comet, or maybe it was just some kind of supernatural light, similar to what God did every day there in the desert for his people, when every day he provided them with a pillar of cloud, and every night he provided them with a pillar of fire to safely guide them to the promised land. And maybe that's what God did on an even bigger scale there in the night sky for the Magi. I, I don't know. But I do know this, God put the light there. God put the star there so the Magi could see. And the Magi know that star is a sign. It's pointing to some, something extraordinary has just occurred in our world. Somebody exceptional has entered into our world. Somebody of a kingly nature. And we want to find out who he is and what he's really like. That's why we're here. We are here to worship him. Now, who are these Magi? We get our word magic or magician from this word Magi. But they're not magicians like we think of magicians. I think of a magician, I think of some entertainer on a stage doing a bunch of tricks, pulling rabbits out of the hat, sawing people in two, making an elephant disappear from the stage. They're not those kind of magicians. They're more like astrologers. In fact, it was kind of a combination of astronomy and astrology. They study the stars because they believe those stars predict our future, that somehow, some way, what's happening up there in the night sky determines our fate. So especially when something unusual is going on, like a falling star or the sudden appearance of a comet, they take that as some kind of omen or sign, and they try to understand what that means. Is that forecasting something good for us, or is it forecasting something bad? And for all those people back there in the ancient world, with all the people that they experienced, with all the famines and the plagues and the wars going on, life was so chaotic for them. So everybody was yearning for some sense of order and stability in their lives. They were yearning for some sense of certainty about their future. So they would often come to men like these, the Magi, for advice. Hey, tell me about the future and what's coming our way so we know how to get ready for it. Back in that pagan world, these men were really looked up to and admired. And that's why the Magi often served as advisors and counselors to the king. They are men of prestige, they are men of wealth, they're educated, they've read all the books, they've studied all the religions of that day and time. They're some of the most educated people of the ancient world. But the problem's this, they're, they're searching for their wisdom from the wrong sources. Rather than getting their wisdom from the stars, they need to get their wisdom from the one who made the stars. So here is God reaching out to the Magi, connecting on a level that, that really will resonate with their heart. They study the stars, so he puts up a unique light up there in the sky, a light like they have never seen before, something that's going to stir up a curiosity in their hearts where they can't sit still. Hey, we've never seen anything like this before. We've got to check this out. We've got to find out what this is all about. It's God who is initiating the church. It's God who's motivating the Magi to take this long, difficult journey to Jerusalem because he stirred up all these questions in their minds, and we've got to find an answer. So even though the Magi don't realize it at this point, it's God. It's God who's bringing them to Jerusalem. So they get to Jerusalem. They began asking, I mean, they come to Jerusalem because that's the capital of Israel. They figure if the king's going to be born, he's going to be born in a place like this. They're asking all around, hey, where is it? We want to worship him. And the word gets back to King Herod. What? Some kind of new king on the scene? And he gets really upset. Verse 3. It says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, greatly alarmed, and all Jerusalem with him. If I was in Jerusalem, I'd be nervous too. I mean, if you knew a guy like Herod, he's been in power for more than 40 years, and one of the ways he's tried to maintain that power is he just eliminates his right. I mean, literally, eliminates. He's already murdered his mom, murdered his wife, murdered three of his sons, and hundreds and hundreds of other people. He'll do whatever it takes to maintain his throne. So he hears that a new king has been born. <laughs> Everybody's asking, okay, this jealous, this paranoid guy, what kind of rampage is he going to go on now? 
Well, this is where it begins to get interesting, verse 4. See, God has brought the Magi to Jerusalem with this unique light in the sky. The heavens, he's using his creation to speak to them. The heavens declare the glory of God. And he's now giving those Magi a special glimpse of that glory. So he uses the light in the sky to bring him to Jerusalem. But if he's going to lead these men to Jesus, it requires something else. The light that can only be found when you open up Scripture. Remember what the Bible teaches, Romans chapter 10? Faith comes from hearing. And not just hearing anything, but hearing the message that comes out of this book. So watch, verse 4. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of law, the religious experts, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, and they know. They respond right away. Verse 5, in Bethlehem, Judea. There's two Bethlehems, one in the very northern part of Israel, but he's talking about the one in the south, the one that's near the city of Jerusalem, the one in the region of Judea. The prophet's very specific. It's this Bethlehem I'm talking about. And they reply, for this is what the prophet, and the prophet they're talking about is Micah. And they're going to quote a verse from his book, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no means least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler, not like Herod, not a tyrant. Out of you will come a ruler who truly cares about people. He will shepherd my people, Israel. So Herod gets this piece of information. He's going to pass along the Magi because secretly he wants to carry out this conspiracy against this new king, and he's hoping to be able to manipulate these men. So Herod calls the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time this light in the sky, this star, has appeared. Hey, when did the star first appear? That's when the king supposedly was born. How long you been in this journey? How old would that kid be about now? He's trying to put two, two, two and two together in his mind. And once he makes all these calculations, now he sends them out on a mission. Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. What a powerful piece of wisdom coming out of the mouth of this pagan man. If only Herod had followed his own advice. The invitation wasn't just for the Magi. It was for Herod. It was for the, the, the priests and the scribes, all the people of Jerusalem. But the, all the others take their invitation, just toss it aside. Only the Magi respond. But this, this go and search carefully for the child. It's the same lesson the Bible tries to teach us in Hebrews chapter 11 when it talks about faith. It says, what is faith? Faith is believing that he exists. That God is real. And number two, it's believing that he will reward those who diligently search for him. Well, we're seeing that played out here with the Magi and how God is going to richly reward their lives because they make this careful search for Jesus. So go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, Herod says, report to me so I may go as well and worship him. He's just lying. Well, after they heard the king, the Magi went on their way. And the star that they'd seen so long ago out there in the east that started this whole journey, it appears again. And they get excited. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. But trust me, the joy they experience right now is nothing compared to the joy they are about to experience when they see Jesus. Verse 11, on coming to the house, at last they saw the child. And now in seeing Jesus, they don't need the stars anymore. They found a better light. They have found a much better source of wisdom. And when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed down and worshipped him. They recognized we are in the presence of true greatness. We are in the presence of someone who is divine. And so they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened up their treasures. And they presented him with gifts, three types of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, how much of this they offered? Four or five boxes of gold, six, seven boxes of frankincense, 12, 13 boxes of myrrh. Uh, I don't know how much, but I do know this. these gifts are costly. 
back in that day and time, usually reserved for royalty. These are gifts fit for a king. Here are, the, here are the magi offering their very best and laying it at the feet of Jesus. And then verse 12, having been warned by God in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to home. I love this phrase. They return home a different way. That's not just true on the surface. They went a different way to stay away from Herod to avoid the danger. But it's also true in a much deeper level. They went home a different way because they're not the same anymore. They've met Jesus. Their lives have been changed. They're going back home to live in a new way. Now, let's take a moment and reflect on this. What have we seen here? Think about this. When they first began their trip, the Magi didn't know one thing about Jesus. Not one thing. I mean, all they had is this one clue, this one special light in the sky indicating that some kind of a king has been born. That's all they've got to go on. They have so little to work with. And yet they take what little they have and they're willing to act upon it. They travel hundreds of miles at their own expense. There's no king financing this trip. It's coming out of their own pockets. And trust me, a journey like that is really going to cost. They take this long, expensive journey. They finally get to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, they're only given one verse of Scripture. That's it. One one verse, Micah 5, 2, and one light. They have so little to work with, yet they take what little has been given to them, and they act upon it. And they go to Bethlehem, and they meet Jesus, and their lives are changed forever. You contrast that with now five, six miles away here in Jerusalem. Here are all these priests and scribes who spent their entire lives studying Moses and the prophets. They have spent their entire lives memorizing scripture and teaching others the principles of faith. I mean, they've got so much to work with. And yet when they learn, when they hear that the Messiah has been born, how do they respond? They ignore him. Not a one of them comes to Bethlehem to see What's going on? They're in Jerusalem. They have so much, and the Magi have so little. Why is it the Magi find Jesus and the priests don't? Why is it the Magi believe and the religious leaders don't? Jesus answers that question in Matthew chapter 7, verse 8. He says, he who seeks finds. You've got to make the search. You've got to make that careful search. It's not enough for you to know all these wonderful things about the Lord. You've got to go out and meet him for yourself. I know this is a really poor analogy, but hang with me. Think of a sponge. And let's say this sponge has been dipped in a sink filled with water. In fact, you've just left it in the sink all afternoon for hours and hours where it just absorbs all of that liquid. So several hours later, you come along and you pull the sponge out. Now when you pull it out, it is filled with water. I mean, everywhere through that sponge, the water is present. Everywhere in this big pad, it's just filled with moisture. And yet... If you weren't aware of where this sponge has been, you may not realize that just by looking at it. Even though it's just filled with moisture, it's got water all the way through it, just by looking at it, you may not realize what's actually there. So to find out what's really there, what do you got to do? You got to squeeze the sponge. That's what the Magi were doing. One light, one verse of scripture, but they were willing to act on what they had, to do something with what they had. They were willing to squeeze the sponge. They were willing to go and make that careful search. And as a result of that search, that long, expensive, difficult search, what did God do? He flooded their lives with his love and flooded their lives with his glory. Jesus said, he who seeks, that's the one who will make the discovery. Are you making a careful search for Jesus in this Christmas season? Let's pray.